0: Thanks, Pauline. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Let me add my welcome to Josh's. Uh, if you've uh, closed your Bibles up, let me encourage you to open them back up again to Acts chapter 1. As we Last week, we kind of kicked off the series having a bit more of an overview. Uh, today, we're getting into Acts chapter 1, and we'll be wrestling through the first 11 chapters uh, over the first term this year, and uh, hopefully God will just uh, continue to encourage us that he is powerfully at work in our world and that he wants us to be on board with him in the mission that he is uh, Conducting himself. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning, which is precious time. Uh, Our world is busy, chasing all kinds of different things. Sometimes, Father, it's hard even for us to stop, to slow down, to sit and listen to you. But we have that moment just now, Lord God, so please uh, remove the distractions that we might um, rest quietly in your word and reflect on what you were saying to us this morning. Please help us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got to admit uh, that uh, there's nothing too notable about what I have been an eyewitness to. Uh, Nothing much, really. I I witnessed a couple of unpleasant things, perhaps. Uh, You know, a woman being hit by a car, other things I won't elaborate on. But on a brighter note, I was at the SCG for a famous match that no one who is under 45 will even remember, but that's okay, I remember it, where Michael Bevan, some don't even know who he is, right, Michael Bevan single-handedly won a one-day cricket match against Sri Lanka on the last ball of the innings. Anybody at all remember that? Yeah, see, there was only one person at St Matthews. There's about 10 here, that's that's excellent. For you, 10, I put in that illustration. And of course, I'm an an eyewitness to the uh, COVID uh, 2020 pandemic. Uh, as of course you are as well, but in the end my eyewitness accounts aren't really that spectacular. I wasn't there to see the Berlin Wall come down. I, I, wasn't, I was too young to witness John F. Kennedy being shot uh, or hear Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream. And even though I saw the, uh, the images of the Twin Towers crumbling in a terrorist attack and heard the reports, I wasn't an eyewitness. And just because I wasn't yet born and, uh, or wasn't there to see or hear those events of history doesn't mean that I can't know about them. They're big events with big impacts upon our world, and there were some who witnessed them firsthand and reported on them. And so in the bigger scheme of things, my eyewitness accounts are fairly mundane and minor. But can I say that's not the case for the apostles of Jesus. They were witnesses of some incredible things. Now, before we look at some of those things, it's worth being clear about this issue of witnesses. Uh, Most people know what a witness is, uh, but sometimes Christians just think when we talk about witnesses, we just talk about evangelising, right? But witnesses are those who tell what they've seen or heard, what they've witnessed. The apostles of Jesus heard and saw some incredible things. They witnessed some events of history. Now, with your Bibles open there, at Acts chapter 1, let me just um, begin again in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and remind you what is written there. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And we saw last week that the first section of Acts chapter 1 was a recap of the last chapter of Luke's Gospel. Uh, It connects Acts to Luke, uh, sorry, Acts to Luke's Gospel as the second of two volumes that Luke wrote. Uh, Luke's Gospel is the historical account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts is the account of Jesus' continuing work here on earth through his chosen apostles. In other words, what he does now and how. Uh, The apostles had seen almost everything that Jesus did and taught. They were eyewitnesses. They'd heard his parables. uh, His teaching about God's kingdom, his disputes with the religious leaders, his private teaching with them. Uh, They'd also seen his miracles, so his feeding of the 5,000. His healing of the sick and the lame, his control over nature, his concern for the poor, the despised, the oppressed. They saw his love and compassion. They saw his kindness and generosity, his mercy and acceptance, his anger at injustice and evil. But they also saw what had happened to him, how he had been betrayed by Judas, how he was unjustly tried, how he was exposed to public ridicule and shame, how he was tortured and nailed to a wooden cross to die, all while asking his father for, to forgive those who were killing him. But amazingly, that's, that's not all they saw or heard. Because Luke reminds us that they also saw and heard the resurrected Jesus. Uh, see what he says there in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The apostles were uh, witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Uh, They saw him alive after his death over a period of 40 days. he He presented himself to them alive by many proofs. Now, he's not talking about scientific proof, of course, but he's talking about convincing demonstrations. He demonstrated that he was alive. And the word translated proof refers to the kind of evidence that is conclusive. They were convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead because the evidence before them led to that conclusion. The risen Jesus was not just kind of a figment of their imagination. He wasn't the kind of desperate wishes for someone that they'd loved and lost. And nor was he just a spirit or a ghost. The apostles and the others were convinced that he was the bodily resurrected Jesus, which is actually what he promised that would happen. One of the proofs that Jesus offered them, remember, in in Luke 24, was that he he actually appeared amongst them and ate with them. Just what a normal physical human being would do. He was alive and they knew it. They were witnesses of the fact. But it's not the only incredible event they witnessed. Have a look again from verse 9 in Acts chapter 1. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So following the the resurrection, the apostles knew that they could expect anything. But the sight of Jesus being taken up into a cloud is such a startling one that you would never forget it now people who have witnessed major historic events like September 11 for example testify to never being able to forget what they saw and their lives never being the same as a result i mean the ascension of jesus to the right hand of his father in heaven is a completely different kind of event but the effect on those who saw it was much the same. They could neither forget what they saw nor would their lives be the same. And so the ascension was God's ultimate declaration that Jesus was Lord, that he was King, the King of God's kingdom. Jesus had completed his work on earth in bringing in the kingdom and he was restored to his Father in his rightful place And his work continues now in a different way. And just like the resurrection, they had seen him. They'd seen him taken up in a cloud. They were eyewitnesses of that. And the question is, why did Jesus show himself to these people? Uh, Well, these apostles, why did he show them to these apostles whom he had chosen? Which is what verse 2 calls them. Now Luke makes the purpose clear in verse 8. He chose them that they might be his witnesses. Now, one of the key things that the apostles were to witness to was the resurrection, and yet the resurrection came to its climax in the ascension. And so as we kind of work our way through Acts over these uh, next few weeks, we're going to see that it's both the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that were the critical features of the apostles witnessing, because they were truths of such importance that they were willing to die for them. And these were historical events with massive consequences. And perhaps sometimes we forget the historical nature of how God works in our world, in history. The COVID pandemic, September 11, World War II, the Reformation under Martin Luther, they're all historic events that have had massive consequences for our world. However, the events of Acts chapter 1 are no less historical, and the consequences are even greater. In fact, the reality is that Jesus was teaching about history. The the events witnessed by the disciples were critical events in God's purposes for the history of our world. And that's because they were events that fulfilled God's promises about his kingdom and advanced its coming. And so there's a historic background and context to what is happening here at the beginning of Acts. And the story of of the Bible, in a sense, uh, has both a macro, kind of a big picture, and a micro, a small view of history. So from a a macro, the big picture view of history, I mean, we know that since shortly after the creation of the world, humankind, the whole of the world, have lived in general rebellion against their creator, even if they expressed it in different ways. And so that's the general uh, state of our world. From a micro perspective, If we look at the Old Testament of the the Bible and the account of how God acted in history to restore those who who turned from their rebellion and turned to their creator, if we see that, it's, it's a micro view because it's actually played out into the history of one nation out of all the nations on the earth, the nation of Israel, which is why we see the questions in this particular passage. See, God had chosen Israel. The mighty Greek empire had Alexander as their ruler. The glorious Roman Empire had Caesar as their ruler, but Israel would be ruled by God's king. However, the Bible records that Israel, as God's chosen people, failed miserably to represent his kingdom. Their kings rebelled against God, their priests rebelled, the people rebelled, not all of them, of course. But Israel fell into obscurity under God's judgment. However, they lived with the promise and the expectation that God would restore Israel and that he would appoint his king, his Messiah, his Christ, who would rule forever and and rule this time, not just over Israel, but over every nation and people on earth. And so God had promised that his kingdom would come, that the time was coming. And so when Jesus arrived on earth, he announced the good news of the kingdom. Uh, He preached that the kingdom is near in Luke 4, Luke 8. I mean, even the Lord's Prayer that he taught his disciples to pray teaches the coming of the kingdom and our need to pray for it to come. But when and how would it come? You know, when we think of uh, the powerful nations of the world, it's normally about their military power and their leadership. But Ezekiel in the Old Testament, in chapters 36 and 37, he paints an amazing picture of the arrival of God's kingdom into our world. And the key feature being the pouring out of God's spirit on his people. And so the arrival of God's spirit would coincide with the arrival of the kingdom of God. Uh, Have a quick look with me from Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Uh, in, In verse 3, remember, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about the kingdom. And in verse 4 he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that's not a bad question. The resurrected Jesus tells them that they're about to be baptised with the Holy Spirit, and their reaction is to ask, is now? Is this the time when God is going to restore his kingdom? In other words, as the resurrected Messiah, will Jesus now bring down the curtain of history, restore Israel to her rightful place and reign over all creation? It's the right question. It's just the wrong time. See verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But we like to know the time, don't we? If only we knew when the Lord Jesus would return. That'd be good, wouldn't it? We could be ready, couldn't we? If we knew when he was coming, do what we want, get ready just in time. But Jesus makes it clear that the timing is not what we should be distracted by. That's God's prerogative. Jesus makes it clear that there is more work to be done. See verse eight again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." It's not merely human work, is it? Rather, it's spirit-empowered witness. The effect of the Spirit's coming will be to empower the church in its witness to Jesus. So here is the answer to the how question. God's kingdom continues to advance through the witness of the apostles and the church, not by military power or strategy. You know, at one level, the arrival of God's kingdom was fulfilled when the Spirit came. However, the Bible makes it clear that we still await the final rule of God's kingdom at the return of Christ. And so what that means is that we live in a fairly ambiguous phase of history. The reality is that you and I live in two overlapping phases of history. I've tried to um, show it there on the screen. Uh, That is from the beginning of the world. Uh, Humankind have rebelled against their creator. We have lived in rebellion, what we might call the age of rebellion. It's marked by injustice and suffering and death and poverty and evil. But when Jesus came, died and was raised and ascended, the kingdom of God entered into our world as the Holy Spirit came upon God's people. And the kingdom of God now has already broken into our world. And a mark of the kingdom of God is is that the spirit will be given to his his believers, that there is justice and health and wealth and life. And yet we don't see it like that, do we? Because right at this moment, we live in in an overlap of two ages, where the age of rebellion has not finally come to an end, when Jesus returns and God's judgment will come down on all, all nations. But we live now in an age of grace, an age of witness, where the message, the good news of Jesus, is being proclaimed to all nations so that people can turn back to God and be saved. So according to God's history of of his world, we're in the age of witness. But the witness of the apostles and of the church after them is a supernatural activity. Uh, It's no ordinary witness. They and we are spiritual witnesses. Well, the odd account of the choosing of Matthias to be the twelfth man reminds us that this is not just a human task. Uh, the apostle Peter tells the small group of followers that Judas, uh, who betrayed Jesus, needed to be replaced in order to fulfil Scripture. Uh, look at verse 21. So one of the men who had a, have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become, with us, a witness to his resurrection. And the story continues that two men are chosen, Matthias and Joseph, and they pray and ask Jesus to choose one of the men to replace Judas as a witness. Uh, And so they cast lots, and Matthias is chosen. Uh, Some people wonder why this story is here, why do they need a replacement? And does this method method that they use mean that we should cast lots today to determine God's will? Well, first, uh, by restoring the group to 12 apostles, it actually shows the connection with the Old Testament people of God represented by the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's chosen group of witnesses was now complete. But secondly, in terms of casting lots to determine God's mind, uh, you'll notice, you, Well, you might notice that this is the last instance of it recorded in Scripture. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the Spirit hadn't yet come. And Jesus had promised that the Spirit would reveal the truth to and through his apostles. And so with the arrival of God's Spirit that we're going to see next week, speaking now through the apostles, it's no longer necessary to seek guidance from God in other ways. However, the Matthias story illustrates that there's more to being a witness to Jesus here, doesn't it? Because Matthias, remember, was already an eyewitness to Jesus. He'd been there from the beginning, and yet now he was chosen to become an eyewitness. Now, clearly, there was more to it than just seeing. Uh, He was more than a witness. He was a chosen witness. Jesus chose him along with the other apostles, and they would together be sealed on the day of Pentecost as spiritual witnesses. Now in the meantime, Jesus told them to wait. Wait because their witness would be powerless unless they were baptised with the Holy Spirit. Now we can't understand the things of God unless the Spirit of God reveals them to us. Unless the Spirit gives us spiritual understanding and insight. Try opening up any history textbook and finding an entry under resurrection or ascension. Now understandably they don't kind of a mention in any human reconstruction of history, but that's because you have to have the Spirit to understand God's plan of history. Friends, if we're going to understand our mission from Jesus, there are at least three critical things that we need to be clear about. Firstly, uh, we need to understand how people can meet Jesus today. Now, Acts shows us that the way we meet Jesus is in the apostolic witness. It's the way Jesus set up for future generations to meet him. So if you want to meet Jesus, if you want to get to know Jesus, if you want to be in a relationship with Jesus, then you need to start reading the scriptures, the Bible. And you need to keep keep reading them. Why? Well, because the scriptures are where the apostles, the eyewitnesses, It's where their eyewitness is recorded in the New Testament. It also means that if we want to introduce other people to Jesus, we need to use the scriptures. And then secondly, we need to understand that our mission from Jesus is not merely a human undertaking. So investigating Jesus or Christianity is not just kind of a historical inquiry, even though it is that, it must also be spiritual. Uh, It didn't matter how urgent the task was, the disciples were not to begin their ministry, remember, without the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives insight to and understanding of God's Word and of the Apostle's witness. And it's the Spirit who interprets the words and actions of Jesus in the hearts and minds of those who hear them. And so if we want to see God's kingdom grow in our community here, then we'd be foolish to imagine that we could just make it happen by our own clever strategies or our wise application of business principles or even just by working hard. Jesus may have ascended to heaven, but he continues to rule and to direct his church from there and he provides the resources needed for his mission through the Holy Spirit. And that leads us, I think, naturally to the third and final thing that we need to understand. That is, we need to understand the central importance of prayer as God's people. You know what kind of strikes me about this point? It's that prayer is probably the easiest thing that we could ever do in ministry. Also perhaps one of the most important. But it's the thing that we are, I think, least likely to be found doing. We can pray almost anywhere, anytime. We can do it in bed before we sleep or when we wake. We can do it on our way to work at morning tea or lunchtime. We can do it when we exercise. Uh, we can set aside special times for it. We can spend a few brief moments or a considerable time doing it and anywhere in between. We normally don't have to go anywhere or to do it, and the preparation time, of course, is minimal. We can, however... Not just do it on our own, we can meet together to do it with one another, with maybe one other person, two other, or hundreds of people. It's a good thing to do. Praying with others is a great thing for us to be doing. The disciples, notice in Acts, devoted themselves to prayer. That is, they persisted in it. And they prayed with one accord. That is, they were united in their prayers, agreeing together what they prayed about and for. And the fact that God had already promised The things that they prayed about wasn't a deterrent to prayer, it was actually an incentive to pray. God had promised to give them what they now prayed for. And their praying was expressing their confident trust in his promises to them. Yet we've got no reason to expect that God should give us those things that he has never promised. But we should pray consistently and confidently for those things that he has promised to give. You see, what we do together as a church is not merely a human activity. It's fundamentally spiritual. The church must witness to Jesus in the power of his spirit. That's what we're called to do. That is when we're on mission with Jesus. And so we ought to pray. And why don't we do that right now? Let's spend a moment to pray. Gracious God, you are a good and loving God. Your word is powerful to transform lives, to transfer people from darkness to light, to give hope where there is hopelessness, give joy in the midst of pain. Give clarity about what life is all about. Help us understand what we should be pursuing in life. Father, thank you that you have sent your Spirit and that your kingdom has come. And Father, as we live in this age of witness, this time before Jesus returns, this time of proclamation, we pray, Lord God, that you would embolden us and give us confidence that your word is powerful to save and that as your witnesses, we are not alone. Your spirit is with us, enabling us to trust you as we hold out the word of life to all those that we know and love and those that we don't know, that they too might be saved. We ask your help as we seek to do this together as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen.